This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And this combines two of our favorite themes, literary themes and historical ones. Paul Revere's Ride is a poem by an American poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and it commemorates the actions of American patriot Paul Revere on April 18, 1775. Longfellow was inspired to write the poem after visiting the Old North Church in Boston and climbing its tower on April 5, 1860. He began writing the poem the very next day. It was published in the January 1861 issue of the Atlantic Monthly. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere on the 18th of April in 75. Hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. He said to his friend, If the British march by land or sea from the town tonight, hang a lantern aloft in the belfry arch of the North Church Tower as a signal light. One if by land and two if by sea, and I on the opposite shore will be ready to ride and spread the alarm through every Middlesex village and farm for the country folk to be up and to arm. Then he said, good night, and with muffled oar silently rowed to the Charlestown shore. Just as the moon rose over the bay, where swinging wide at her moorings lay the Somerset, British man-of-war, a phantom ship with each mast and spar across the moon like a prison bar, and a huge black hulk that was magnified by its own reflection in the tide. Meanwhile, his friend, through alley and street, wanders and watches with eager ears, till in the silence around him, he hears the muster of men at the barrack door, the sound of arms and the tramp of feet, and the measured tread of the grenadiers marching down to their boats on the shore. Then he climbed the tower of the old north church by the wooden stairs with stealthy tread to the belfry chamber overhead and startled the pigeons from their perch on the somber rafters that round him made masses and moving shapes of shade. By the trembling ladder, steep and tall, to the highest window in the wall, where he paused to listen and looked down a moment on the roofs of the town and the moonlight flowing over all. Beneath, in the churchyard, lay the dead and their night encampment on the hill, wrapped in silence so deep and still that he could hear like a sentinel's tread the watchful night wind as it went creeping along from tent to tent and seeming to whisper, All is well. A moment only he feels the spell of the place and the hour and the secret dread of the lonely belfry and the dead. For suddenly all his thoughts are bent on a shadowy something far away where the river widens to meet the bay, a line of black that bends and floats on the rising tide like a bridge of boats. Meanwhile, impatient to mount and ride, booted and spurred with a heavy stride on the opposite shore, walked Paul Revere. 
Now he patted his horse's side, now gazed at the landscape far and near, then impetuous stamped the earth and turned and tightened his saddle girth. But mostly he watched with eager search the belfry tower of the old North Church as it rose above the graves on the hill, lonely and spectral and somber and still. And lo! As he looks on the belfry's height, a glimmer and then a gleam of light. He springs to the saddle, the bridle he turns, but lingers and gazes till full on his sight. A second lamp in the belfry burns. A hurry of hoofs in a village street, a shape in the moonlight, a bulk in the dark. And beneath from the pebbles in passing, a spark struck out by a steed flying fearless and fleet. That was all, and yet through the gloom and the light, the fate of a nation was riding that night. And the spark struck out by that steed in his flight kindled the land into flame with its heat. He has left the village and mounted the steep, and beneath him, tranquil and broad and deep, is the mystic meeting the ocean tides. And under the alders that skirt its edge, now soft on the sand, now loud on the ledge, is heard the tramp of his steed as he rides. It was twelve by the village clock when he crossed the bridge into Medford town. He heard the crowing of the cock and the barking of the farmer's dog and felt the damp of the river fog that rises after the sun goes down. It was one by the village clock when he galloped into Lexington. He saw the gilded weathercock swim in the moonlight as he passed and the meeting house windows, blank and bare, gaze at him with a spectral glare as if they already stood aghast at the bloody work they would look upon. It was two by the village clock when he came to the bridge in Concord town. He heard the bleating of the flock and the twitter of birds among the trees and felt the breath of the morning breeze blowing over the meadows brown. And one was safe and asleep in his bed. Who at the bridge would be first to fall? Who that day would be lying dead, pierced by a British musket ball? You know the rest. In the books you have read how the British regulars fired and fled, how the farmers gave them ball for ball from behind each fence and farmyard wall, chasing the redcoats down the lane, then crossing the fields to emerge again under the trees at the turn of the road and only pausing to fire and load. So through the night rode Paul Revere. And so through the night went his cry of alarm to every Middlesex village and farm, a cry of defiance and not of fear, a voice in the darkness, a knock at the door, and a word that shall echo forevermore. For born on the night wind of the past, through all our history to the last, in the hour of darkness and peril and need, the people will waken and listen to hear the hurrying hoofbeats of that steed and the midnight message of Paul Revere. And what a reading, and what a story, folks. Longfellow visits the Old North Church, climbs its tower, and out this comes the next day. Gets in the Atlantic Monthly, January 1861. Still as relevant today as ever this story, reminding us how it all started. This is Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And every now and then on our show, we love to play a really great speech. And today, we have the late Carnegie Mellon Professor Randy Pausch's last lecture. And Randy was born on this day in history in 1960. And all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And Randy, what a story this is, what a speech this is. He died in 2008 at the age of 47. But before he died, he gave this last lecture on September 18, 2007. Here's the speech and his story. You know, in case there's anybody who wandered in and doesn't know the backstory, my dad always taught me when there's an elephant in the room, introduce them. Uh, If you look at my CAT scans, there are approximately 10 tumors in my liver, and the doctors told me three to six months of good health left. Uh, That was a month ago, so you can do the math. Um, I have some of the best doctors in the world. Uh, So that is what it is. We can't change it, and we just have to decide how we're going to respond to that. We cannot change the cards we are dealt, just how we play the hand. Uh, If I don't seem as depressed or morose as I should be, um, sorry to disappoint you. Uh, And I assure you, I am not in denial. It's not like I'm not aware of what's going on. My family, my three kids, my wife, we just decamped. We bought a lovely house in Chesapeake, Virginia, near Norfolk. And we're doing that because that's a better place for the family to be down the road. Uh, And the other thing is I am in phenomenally good health right now. I mean, is the greatest thing of cognitive dissonance you will ever see is the fact that I am in really good shape. In fact, I'm in better shape than most of you. All right, so what are we not talking about today? We're not talking about cancer because I spent a lot of time talking about that and I'm really not interested. If you have any herbal supplements or remedies, please stay away from me. Uh, And we're not going to talk about things that are even more important than achieving your childhood dreams. We're not going to talk about my wife, we're not talking about my kids, because I'm good, but I'm not good enough to talk about that without tearing up. So we're just going to take that off the table. That's much more important. And we're not going to talk about spirituality and religion. Um, So what is today's talk about then? It's about my childhood dreams and how I've achieved them. I've been very fortunate that way. How I believe I've been able to enable the dreams, I've been able to enable the dreams of others. And to some degree, lessons learned. I'm a professor. There should be some lessons learned. And how you can use the stuff you hear today to achieve your dreams or enable the dreams of others. And as you get older, you may find that enabling the dreams of others thing is even more fun. And that's something we should not lose sight of, is that the inspiration and the permission to dream is huge. So what were my childhood dreams? You may not agree with this list, but (laughs) I was there. Uh, Being in zero gravity, playing in the National Football League, uh, authoring an article in the World Book Encyclopedia. I guess you can tell the nerds early. And I wanted to be an Imagineer with Disney. And uh, it turns out that NASA has uh, something called the Vomit Comet that they use to train the astronauts. And this thing does parabolic arcs. And at the top of each arc, you get about 25 seconds where you're ballistic and you get about a rough equivalent of weightlessness for about 25 seconds. And there is a program where college students can submit proposals, and if they win the competition, they get to fly. And I thought that was really cool, and we had a team, and we put a team together, and they won, and they got to fly. And I was all excited, because I was going to go with them. And then I fit the first brick wall, because they made it very clear that under no circumstances were faculty members allowed to fly with the teams. I know, I was heartbroken, right. I was like, but I worked so hard. <laughs> uh, 
And so I read the literature very carefully, and it turns out that NASA, it's part of their outreach and publicity program, and it turns out that these students were allowed to bring a local media journalist from their hometown. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> Randy Pausch, web journalist. Uh, it's really easy to get a press pass. So, uh, so I called up the guys at NASA and I said, um, I need to know where to fax some documents. And they said, uh, what documents are you going to fax us? So I said, my resignation as the uh, faculty advisor and my application as the journalist. <laughs> and he said, that's a little transparent, don't you think? <laughs> and I said, yeah, but our project is virtual reality, and we're going to bring down a whole bunch of VR headsets, and all the students from all the teams are going to experience it, and all those other real journalists are going to get to film it. Childhood dream number one? Check. <laughs> all right, let's talk about football. My dream was to play in the National Football League. And most of you don't know that I actually... Play. No. Um, <laughs> no, I did not make it to the National Football League. But I probably got more from that dream and not accomplishing it than I got from any of the ones that I did accomplish. Um, I, I had a coach. I signed up when I was nine years old. I was the, the smallest kid in the league by far. And I had a coach, Jim Graham, who was six foot four. He had played linebacker at Penn State. He was just this hulk of a guy, and he was old school. Okay, I mean really old school. Like, he thought the forward pass was a trick play. <laughs> so, and he showed up for practice the first day, and, you know, this big hulking guy, we were all scared to death of him, and he hadn't brought any footballs. How, how are we going to have practice without any footballs? And one of the other kids said, excuse me, coach, but there's no football. And Coach Graham said, right, how many men are on a football field at a time? Somebody said, 11 on a team, 22. And Coach Graham said, all right, and how many people are touching the football at any given time? Well, one of them. And he said, right, so we're going to work on what those other 21 guys are doing. <laughs> and that's a really good story because it's all about fundamentals. Fundamentals, fundamentals, fundamentals. You've got to get the fundamentals down because otherwise the fancy stuff isn't going to work. And the other Jim Graham story I have is there was one practice where he just rode me, all practice. Just, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, go back and do it again, you owe me, you're doing push-ups after practice. And when it was all over, one of the other assistant coaches came over and said, yeah, Coach Graham rode you pretty hard, didn't he? I said, yeah. He said, that's a good thing. He said, when you're screwing up and nobody's saying anything to you anymore, that means they gave up. And that's a lesson that stuck with me my whole life, is that... When you, see, when you see yourself doing something badly and nobody's bothering to tell you anymore, that's a very bad place to be. Your critics are your ones telling you they still love you and care. Um, and the other thing about football is we send our kids out to play football or soccer or swimming or whatever it is. And it's the first example of what I'm going to call a head fake or indirect learning. We actually don't want our kids to learn football. I mean, yeah, it's really nice that I have a wonderful three-point stance and that I know how to do a chop block and all this kind of stuff. But we send our kids out to learn much more important things. Teamwork, sportsmanship, perseverance, etc., etc. And these kinds of head fake learnings are absolutely important. And you should keep your eye out for them because they're everywhere. All right, a simple one being an author in the World Book Encyclopedia. When I was a kid, we had the World Book Encyclopedia on the shelf. And after I had become somewhat of an authority on virtual reality, but not like a really important one, so I was at the level of people the World Book would badger. Uh, they called me up, and I wrote an article, and uh, this is Caitlin Kelleher, 
And uh, there's an article, if you go to your local library where they still have copies of the World Book, look under V for Virtual Reality, and there it is. And all I have to say is that um, having been selected to be an author in, in the World Book Encyclopedia, I now believe that Wikipedia is a perfectly fine source for your information because <laughs> I know what the quality control is for real encyclopedias. They let me in. Uh, all right, my next one, being an Imagineer. This was the hard one. Uh, believe me, getting to zero gravity is easier than becoming an Imagineer. Uh, when I was a kid, I was eight years old, and our family took a trip cross-country to see Disneyland. And if you've ever seen the movie National Lampoon's Vacation, it was a lot like that. It was a quest. And uh, these are real vintage photographs. Uh, and there I am in front of the castle, and there I am. And for those of you who are into foreshadowing, this is the Alice ride. <laughs> and, and I just thought this was just the coolest, coolest environment I'd ever been in. And instead of saying, gee, I want to experience this, I said, I want to make stuff like this. Uh, I loved Imagineering. It was just a spectacular place. Just spectacular. Everything that I had dreamed. Uh, I love the model shop. People crawling around on things the size of this room that are just big physical models. It was just an incredible place to walk around and be inspired. And then at the end of my six months, they came to me and they said, you want to do it for real? You can stay. <laughs> and I said no, but it worked out okay. And if they had said, stay here or never walk in the building again, I would have done it. I would have walked away from tenure. I would have just done it. But they made it easy on me. They said, you can have your cake and eat it too. And I basically become a day-a-week day -week consultant for Imagineering. And I did that for about 10 years. And that's one of the reasons you should all become professors. <laughs> because you can have your cake and eat it too. And when we come back, more of Randy Pausch and his remarkable last lecture. Born on this day in history in 1960, his story continues here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we've been listening to Randy Pausch's last lecture. And again, he was born on this day in history in 1960. And he'd been able to fulfill many of his childhood dreams, as we heard, even becoming an Imagineer for Disney. But his real passion was teaching. Let's return to Randy. And so those are my childhood dreams. And, you know, that's pretty good. I felt good about that. So then the question becomes, how can I enable the childhood dreams of others? And again, boy, am I glad I became a professor. What better place to enable childhood dreams? This started in a very concrete realization that I could do this. Because a young man named Tommy Burnett, when I was at the University of Virginia, came to me, was interested in joining my research group. 
And uh, we talked about it. And he said, oh, and I have a childhood dream. Well, it gets pretty easy to recognize them when they tell you. Uh, and I said, yes, Tommy, what is your childhood dream? He said, I want to work on the next Star Wars film. Now, you've got to remember the timing on this. Where is Tommy? Tommy is here today. What year would this have been, your sophomore year? Oh. It was around 1993. Are you breaking anything back there, young man? Okay, all right. So in 1993, and I said to Tommy, you know they're probably not going to make those next movies. <laughs> And he said, no, they are. <laughs> and Tommy worked with me for a number of years as an undergraduate and then as a staff member. And then when I moved to Carnegie Mellon, every single member of my team came from Virginia to Carnegie Mellon, except for Tommy, because he got a better offer. <laughs> and he did indeed work on all three of those films. So, uh, and then I said, well, that's nice, but, you know, one at a time is kind of inefficient. And people who know me know that I'm an inefficiency freak. So I said, can I do this in mass? Can I get people turned in such a way that they can be turned on to their childhood dreams? And I created a course. I came to Carnegie Mellon, and I created a course called Building Virtual Worlds. It's a very simple course. How many people here have ever been to any of the shows? Okay, so you have a, some of you have an idea. For those of you who don't, the course is very simple. There are 50 students drawn from all the different departments of the university. There are randomly chosen, randomly chosen teams, four people per team, and they change every project. A project only lasts two weeks, so you do something, you make something, you show something, then I shuffle the teams, you get three new playmates, and you do it again. And it's every two weeks, and so you do five projects during the semester. Uh, the first year we taught this course, it is impossible to describe how much of a tiger by the tail we had. I was just running the course because I wanted to see if we could do it. We had just learned how to do texture mapping on 3D graphics, and we could make stuff that looked half decent, but you know, we were running on really weak computers by current standards. But I said, I'll give it a try. And at my new university, I made a couple of phone calls, and I said, I want to cross-list this course to get all the other people. And within 24 hours, it was cross-listed in five departments. I love this university. I mean, it's just, a, it's the most amazing place. And I said, and the kids said, well, what content do we make? I said, hell, I don't know. You make whatever you want. Uh, two rules. No shooting violence and no pornography. Not because I'm opposed to those in particular, but, you know, that's been done with VR. Right? <laughs> and you'd be amazed how many 19-year-old boys are completely out of ideas when you take those off the table. Anyway, so I, I taught the course. The first assignment, I gave it to them. They came back in two weeks, and they just blew me away. I mean, the work was so beyond, literally, my imagination. Because I'd copied the process from Imagineering's VR lab, but I had no idea what they could or couldn't do with it as undergraduates, and, how, because and their tools were weaker. And they came back in the first assignment, and they did something that was so spectacular that I literally did 10 years as a professor, and I had no idea what to do next. So I called up my mentor. I called up Andy Van Dam, and I said, Andy, I just gave a two-week assignment, and they came back and did stuff that if I'd given them a whole semester, I would have given them all A's. Sensei, what do I do? <laughs> and Andy thought for a minute, and he said, you go back into class tomorrow, and you look them in the eye, and you say, guys, that was pretty good, but I know you can do better. <laughs> 
And that was exactly the right advice, because what he said was, you obviously don't know where the bar should be, and you're only going to do them a disservice by putting it anywhere. And boy, was that good advice, because they just kept going. And during that semester, it became this underground thing. I'd walk into a class with 50, with 50 students in it, and there were 95 people in the room. <laughs> because it was the day we were showing work, and people's roommates and friends and parents. I'd never had parents come to class before. It was flattering and somewhat scary. It was an unusual course. <laughs> with some of the most brilliant creative students from all across the campus. Uh, it, it just was a joy to be involved with. Uh, and they took the whole stage performance aspect of this way too seriously. Um, uh, and it became this campus phenomenon every year. People would line up for it. It was very flattering. And uh, it gave kids a chance of a sense of excitement of putting on a show for people who were then excited about it. And I think that that's one of the best things you can give somebody, the chance to show them what it feels like to make other people get excited and happy. I mean, that's a tremendous gift. All right, so now the third part of the talk, lessons learned. Now, we've talked about my dreams. We've talked about helping other people enable their dreams. Somewhere along the way, there's got to be some aspect of what lets you get to achieve your dreams. First one is the role of parents, mentors, and students. I was blessed to have been born to two incredible people. Uh, my dad was so full of life. Uh, anything with him was an adventure. I don't know what's in that bag, but I know it's cool. Uh, my dad dressed up as Santa Claus, but he also did very, very significant things to help lots of people. Uh, this is a dormitory in Thailand that my mom and dad underwrote. And every year, about... Uh, 30 students get to go to school who wouldn't have otherwise. This is something my wife and I have also been involved in heavily. And these are the kind of things that I think everybody ought to be doing, helping others. Uh, but the best story I have about my dad is, unfortunately, my dad passed away a little over a year ago. And when we were going through his things, he had fought in World War II in the Battle of the Bulge. And when we were going through his things, we found out he had been awarded the Bronze Star for Valor. My mom didn't know it. In 50 years of marriage, it had just never come up. Uh, my mom. Uh, mothers are people who love you even when you pull their hair. Uh, and uh, I have two great mom stories. When I was here studying to get my PhD and I was taking something called the theory qualifier, um, which I can definitively say is the second worst thing in my life after chemotherapy. <laughs> and I was complaining to my mother about how hard this test was and how awful it was. And she just leaned over and she patted me on the arm and she said, we know how you feel, honey. And remember, when your father was your age, he was fighting the Germans. <laughs> After I got my PhD, my mother took great relish in introducing me as, this is my son. He's a doctor, but not the kind who helps people. <laughs> And what a great lecture this is. And when we come back, we're going to continue with Randy Pausch. And he was born on this day in history in 1960. And as always, our This Day in Histories, well, they're brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you should go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their terrific 
and free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. They're great for homeschoolers, heck, for people who went to college but didn't learn anything. The C.S. Lewis course is tremendous. The Economics 101, the Constitution 101. There's hours upon hours of instruction. Gather the family around hillsdale.edu. More of Randy Pausch's story here on Our American Stories. continue with the last lecture of Randy Pausch, and here he is talking about the people in our lives that impact us. Other people who, who help us besides our parents, our teachers, our mentors, our friends, our colleagues. Um, God, what is there to say about Andy Van Dam? Um, when I was a freshman at Brown, he was on leave, and all I heard about was this Andy Van Dam. He was like a mythical creature, like a centaur, but like a really pissed off centaur. <laughs> And everybody was, like, really sad that he was gone, but kind of more relaxed. <laughs> and I found out why, because I started working for Andy. I was a teaching assistant for him as a sophomore, and I was quite an arrogant young man. And I came in to some office hours, and of course it was 9 o'clock at night, and Andy was there at office hours, which is your first clue as to what kind of professor he was. And I come bounding in, and, you know, I'm just, I'm going to save the world. There are all these kids waiting for help, da 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 and afterwards, Andy literally Dutch uncle. He's Dutch, right? He Dutch uncled me. And he put his arm around my shoulders. And we went for a little walk. And he said, Randy, it's such a shame that people perceive you as so arrogant. <laughs> because it's going to, to limit what you're going to be able to accomplish in life. What a hell of a good way to word you're being a jerk. <laughs> Right? He doesn't say you're a jerk. He says people are perceiving you this way. And he says the downside is it's going to limit what you're going to be able to accomplish. When I got to know Andy better, the beatings became more direct. <laughs> but, uh, I could tell you Andy stories for a month. But the one I will tell you is that when it came time to start thinking about what to do after graduating from Brown, it had never occurred to me in a million years to go to graduate school, just out of my imagination. It wasn't the kind of thing people from my family did. We got, say, uh, what do you call them? Uh, jobs. So, and, uh, and Andy said, no, don't go do that. Go get a PhD. Become a professor. And I said, why? And he said, because you're such a good salesman that any company who gets you is going to use you as a salesman, and you might as well be selling something worthwhile, like education. Uh, President Cohen when I told him I was going to do this talk, he said, please tell them about having fun, because that's what I remember you for. And I said, I can do that, but it's kind of like a fish talking about the importance of water. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know how to not have fun, right? I'm dying, and I'm having fun. And I'm going to keep having fun every day I have left, because there's no other way to play it. 
Never lose the childlike wonder. It's just too important. It's what drives us. Help others. You can't give a talk at Carnegie Mellon without acknowledging one very special person, and that would be Sharon Burks. I joked with her, I said, well, look, if you're retiring, it's just not worth living anymore. um, Sharon is, is so wonderful, it's beyond description. And for all of us who've been helped by her, it's just indescribable. I love this picture because it puts it together with Syl. And Syl is great because Syl gave the best piece of advice, pound for pound, that I have ever heard. And I think all young ladies should hear this. Syl said, it took me a long time, but I finally figured it out. When it comes to men that are romantically interested in you, it's really simple. Just ignore everything they say and only pay attention to what they do. It's that simple. It's that easy. And I thought back to my bachelor days and I said, damn. (laughs) Never give up. I didn't get into Brown University. I was on the wait list. I called them up and they eventually decided that it was getting really annoying to have me call every day, so they let me in. Um, At Carnegie Mellon, I didn't get into graduate school. Andy had mentored me. He said, go to graduate school. You're going to go to Carnegie Mellon. All my good students go to Carnegie Mellon. And so he said, you're going to go to Carnegie Mellon, no problem. What he had kind of forgotten was that the difficulty of getting into the top THD program in the country had really gone up, and he also didn't know I was going to tank my GREs because he believed in me, which, based on my board scores, was a really stupid idea. And uh, so I didn't get into Carnegie Mellon. No one knows this till today I'm telling the story. I was declined admission to Carnegie Mellon. And uh, I, I was a bit of an obnoxious little kid. I went into Andy's office, and I dropped the rejection letter on his desk. And I said, I just want you to know what your letter of recommendation goes for at Carnegie Mellon. <laughs> And before the letter had hit his desk, his hand was on the phone, and he said, I will fix this. (laughs) And I said, no, 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 I don't want to do it that way. That's not the way I was raised. You know, maybe some other graduate schools will see fit to admit me. (laughs) And he said, look, Carnegie Mellon's where you're going to be. He said, I tell you what, I'll make you a deal. Go visit the other schools, because I did get into all the other schools. He said, go visit the other schools. And if you really don't feel comfortable at any of them, then will, let you, will you let me call Nico? Nico being Nico Haberman. And I said, okay, deal. I went to the other schools without naming them by name. <coughs> Berkeley, Cornell. Uh, <laughs> they managed to be so unwelcoming that I found myself saying to Andy, you know, I'm going to go get a job. And he said, no, you're not. And he picked up the phone and he talked in Dutch. And he hung up the phone and he said, Nico says if you're serious, be in his office tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. And for those of you who know Nico, (laughs) this is really scary. (laughs) So I'm in Nico Hopperman's office the next morning at 8 a.m. And he's talking with me. And frankly, I don't think he's that keen on this meeting. (laughs) I don't think he's that keen at all. And he says, "Um, Randy, uh, why are we here? And um, I said, because Andy phoned you? <laughs> and I said, well, since you admitted me, I have won a fellowship. The Office of Naval, Office of Naval Research is a very prestigious fellowship. I've won this fellowship, and that wasn't in my file when I applied. And Nico said, a fellowship, money, we have plenty of money. That was back then. <laughs> uh, 
And he said, we have plenty of money. Why do you think having a fellowship makes any difference to us? And he looked at me. There are moments that change your life. And 10 years later, if you know, in retrospect, it was one of those moments, you're blessed. But to know it at the moment, with Nico staring through your soul. (laughs) And I said, I didn't mean to imply anything about the money. It's just that it was an honor. There were only 15 given nationwide. And I did think it was an honor that would be something that would be meritorious. And I apologize if that was presumptuous. And he smiled. (laughs) And that was good. So, how do you get people to help you? You can't get there alone. People have to help you. And I do believe in karma. I believe in paybacks. You get people to help you by telling the truth, being earnest. I'll take an earnest person over a hip person every day, because hip is short-term. Earnest is long-term. Apologize when you screw up. And focus on other people. Remember brick walls, let us show our dedication. They are there to separate us from the people who don't really want to achieve their childhood dreams. Don't bail. The best of the gold is at the bottom of barrels of crap. Get a feedback loop and listen to it. Your feedback loop can be this dorky spreadsheet thing I did, or it can just be one great man who tells you what you need to hear. The hard part is the listening to it. Anybody can get chewed out. Right? It's the rare person who says, oh my God, you're right, as opposed to, no, wait, the real reason is... Right? We've all heard that. When people give you feedback, cherish it and use it. Show gratitude. When I got tenure, I took all of my research team down to Disney World for a week. And one of the other professors at Virginia said, how can you do that? They said, these people just busted their ass and got me the best job in the world for life. How could I not do that? Right? Uh, don't complain, just work harder. Right? It's a picture of Jackie Robinson. It was in his contract not to complain, even when the fans spit on him. Right? Uh, be good at something, it makes you valuable. Work hard. People, I got tenure a year early, as Steve mentioned. Junior faculty members used to say to me, wow, you got tenure early. What's your secret? I said, it's pretty simple. Call me any Friday night in my office at 10 o'clock, and I'll tell you. (laughs) Find the best in everybody. One of the things that John Snotty, as I said, told me is that uh, you might have to wait a long time, sometimes years, but people will show you their good side. Just keep waiting, no matter how long it takes. No one is all evil. Everybody has a good side. Just keep waiting. It will come out. And be prepared. Luck is truly where preparation meets opportunity. So today's talk was about my childhood dreams, enabling the dreams of others, and some lessons learned. But did you figure out the head fake? It's not about how to achieve your dreams. It's about how to lead your life. If you lead your life the right way, the karma will take care of itself. The dreams will come to you. Have you figured out the second head fake? (laughs) Talk's not for you. It's for my kids. Thank you all. Good night. And and you were listening to Randy Pausch's last lecture, and he was born on this day in history in 1960. And we rarely bring you entire talks But Randy's was, well, it was more than a talk. And every year we play it, and we'll always play it. In fact, we do it twice a year because it's so, so damn good. Randy Pausch's story, in a way, his family's, this was again his, his dying thoughts, his parting thoughts to his children. And by the way, you can send your stories 
particularly parting thoughts. Our eulogies, our final thoughts segment is one of our best. We play a final thoughts every week here in Our American Story. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Randy Pausch's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and Americans are expected to spend over $9 billion this year on Halloween, making it the second biggest commercial holiday behind only Christmas. More than half of American homes will be decorated on Halloween, and practically every American child will carve a pumpkin and go trick-or-treating. And no Halloween would be complete without a costume party or a visit to your local haunted house filled with ghouls and ghosts and plenty of staged blood. Today, we're going to bring to light the stories that have been hiding in the dark, answering the question, why do we do these strange things every Halloween? Brayden, go up there and say trick-or-treat. Trick-or-treat. Oh, there you go. What do you say? You're welcome. How do we describe Halloween without sounding insane? Mass children come to our doors and threaten us with a trick if we don't give them a treat. But why do we do this? And why do we carve faces into pumpkins, then light the candles inside? And why do we adorn our houses with coffins and tombstones? The truth is, we take great pleasure in scaring ourselves to death. This impulse is ancient. And so are our treasured Halloween traditions. Here's Talk Thompson, who teaches a ghost story seminar at USC. And its ancient origins go back to the old Celtic calendar. And the old Celtic tribes divided the year between a light half and a dark half. And uh, Samhain, their ancient holiday, was a precursor to our Halloween. It was the beginning of the dark half. Centuries before Christ, a tribe of warriors called the Celts celebrated their Samhain festival with bonfires on the night of October 31st across most of Europe and throughout the British Isles. The Samhain harvest represented the transition from the summer to the winter, and they were at the mercy of the elements. For these ancient peoples, it was a matter of life and death, and winter was the scariest season of them all. But the Celts believed there was even more to Samhain. Here's Leslie Bannatyne, author of Halloween Nation. It was a bit of a warning. You know, it's going to get cold and dark. Gather together, come home, and don't send anybody out alone in the dark. Here's USC history professor Lisa Biddle and Halloween historian David Skull. What marked Samhain and this transition from light to dark was that time and space became permeable, flexible, 
And so that spirits, not only of the dead, but of the past or of other realities could sort of wander into our reality and humans could wander out and get lost in the other world as well. The veil between life and death was at its thinnest and the living and the dead could commingle. And that's at the, the root of all the Halloween celebrations. On Samhain night only, the Celts believed those who had died in the past year walked the earth once more. But not every visiting ghost was friendly. So the Celts devised ways to appease these spirits. Here's professor of religion at Princeton University, Elaine Pagels. It comes from this very archaic sense that the dead return. You have to placate them, you have to do something with them, or they might, they might return and stay, they might trouble you and you know, haunt you in various ways. To appease these spirits, the Celts would parade out to the edge of their villages with offerings of food and sweets as gifts for the dead, trying to coax the evil forces away from their homes. Here's Jack Santino, author of Halloween, Death and Life. The belief in death, the belief in the wandering spirits, the idea of dressing up in costumes and being allowed to perform mischief and pranks, much as supernatural creatures would. Much of our contemporary Halloween traditions seem to be reflected in this ancient Celtic holiday called Samhain. The truth is, we know very little about Samhain. But what we do know is that their bonfires drew one familiar icon, the bat. In older times, people had bonfires on Halloween. Mosquitoes attracted to the bonfires, and the bats attracted to the mosquitoes, and probably the owls. Um, So you could see them flying over the Halloween bonfires, and they became associated with the holiday. How did these ancient traditions survive into our modern era? They were preserved by the Catholic Church. By the 7th century, the Catholic Church had spread throughout most of Europe. Missionaries, including St. Patrick, who would become the patron saint of Ireland, had successfully converted the pagan Celts. The church had found that conversion was far more successful when attempts were made to offer clear alternatives to existing calendar celebrations, rather than simply stamping them out. It was a tactic used under Pope Gregory I to convert more pagans. He said, if you should come across a group of people worshiping a tree, he said, rather than cut the tree down and tell them that they were ignorant and in error, he said, instead, consecrate it to Christ and tell them to keep meeting as they were accustomed to meeting at the same spot. A key pagan festival destined to get a Catholic makeover was Lemuria, a Roman festival of the dead on May 13th where they performed rites to exorcise the malevolent and fearful ghosts from their graves. Here's Brown University professor of Roman history, Nicola Lewis. Of all the different days that they have in the Roman calendar to celebrate the dead, it was the spookiest. So on the Lemuria, what are called the larvae, the ghosts of the departed would come up um, and haunt people. The church co-opted Lemuria in 609, turning May 13th into what they called All Saints Day, also known as All Hallows Day, the word hallow being equivalent to saint. All Hallows Day honored the most holy of dead Catholics, 
those saints who attained heaven. All Hallows Day was such a success that church leaders made a decision to drain the life out of Samhain. So they moved All Hallows Day from May 13th to November 1st. Because of this move, people started calling Samhain All Hallows Evening because it was the evening before All Hallows Day. And this quickly shortened into All Hallows Eve and finally into Halloween. And when we come back, more on the story of how Halloween came to be. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Greg Hengler and his piece on how Halloween came to be. People continued to dress in straw costumes or in animal skins, continued to put out offerings for the souls of the dead who were traveling at that particular time, continued to do much of what they had been accustomed to doing, but now doing it under the name of Halloween rather than under the name of Samhain. And then, to be safe... In the 10th century, the Catholic Church went one step further, adding a holiday to not just honor the saints in heaven, but all Catholics who died and had yet to reach heaven. So November 2nd became All Souls Day. In Mexico, this day is called the Day of the Dead. It's a blend of Spanish Catholic influences mixed with pre-existing pagan Indian elements. This is real important for Halloween because this is where Halloween gets its association with dead souls, death, and the supernatural again. The Catholic Church also established the tradition of trick-or-treating. It all started in the Middle Ages on All Souls Day when priests told church members to pray for souls trapped between heaven and hell in an intermediate world they call purgatory or final purification. Purgatory is not a pleasant place. It's not hell. It's not as bad as hell is, but it's still probably pretty fiery. Souls are kind of suffering there. Luckily, there is something that you could do. You could offer up prayers for them. So how do souls get out of purgatory? According to the church, if enough prayers were offered, a soul would be released up to heaven. Because of this, children would go souling, begging for soul cakes, which were spiced cakes filled with raisins. In return for these treats, the children and some adults would offer up prayers for souls trapped in purgatory. While this forerunner to trick-or-treat became a preoccupation for the medieval church, so did another future essential of Halloween, witches. Here's historian Steve Gillen. It made perfect sense for people in medieval times to believe that there were demons and witches. And if there were demons and witches and they were responsible for bad things in the world, it made sense that you hunt them down and you kill them. That was their worldview. A witch panic that climaxed in the late 16th century established the look of the character. 
almost always a woman, witches were seen as the devil's handmaiden bent on evil and destruction. Here's Lisa Morton, author of the fascinating book, Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween. And a lot of the symbols that were associated with these women, who probably often lived alone, uh, may have been somewhat eccentric, of course, end up becoming associated with witches. In 1486, Pope Innocent VIII published a book claiming a direct link between witchcraft and the devil. He then outlawed the pagan Celtic religion altogether. Over time, even the practical cooking tools used by all acquired sinister dimensions and became model Halloween icons, thanks to witches. Even something mundane as a broom became an instrument of evil as well as handy transportation. Another accessory in every witch's lair was perfect for brewing devilish potions, the cauldron. Here's a clip from the 1956 Looney Tunes episode starring Bugs Bunny and the incredibly vain and hilarious Witch Hazel. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. <laughs> Not bad. Cauldrons become very popular. Again, it was something that every household had in medieval ages. It was your basic cooking implement. The pointed witch's hat was a variation on a country woman's hat. And, of course, even the animals associated with witches took on a demonic character. Here's historian Libby O'Connell. It's not surprising that cats are associated with witches and Halloween. Cats can be a little enigmatic. Um, You don't really know what's going on in their head. Also, they used to hang out near the hearth and by the brooms. So they became associated with witchcraft and with Halloween. This period saw the continued influence of one of Halloween's most well-known icons, the mask, which also appeared in tandem with another unfortunate Halloween tradition, destructiveness. Beggars on All Hallows' Eve guzzled their share of alcohol and demands for food and drink became a bit threatening. Masks helped hide their identities. In Britain, they got into some very particular forms that involved dressing in costumes and going house to house to present these little plays. And at the end of the performance, they would be rewarded with food and sometimes money. By the early 16th century, the Catholic Church was undergoing enormous changes. On Halloween Day in 1517, exactly 500 years ago, Christian revolutionary Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church, attacking Catholic dogma. By launching the Protestant Reformation, Luther changed the face of Christianity and Halloween forever. He rejected all those symbols that stood between worshipers and God, including popes, priests, and saints. So, when saints went out of favor, So did All Saints' Day and, of course, All Hallows' Eve. But the holiday was too popular to go away completely. In 17th century England, 
these customs survived only in rural areas. But thanks to a Catholic militant named Guy Fawkes, they would soon turn up in the city streets. On November 5th, 1605, Fox tried to blow up the Protestant-dominated House of Lords with 36 kegs of gunpowder. His plan was to assassinate King James I and restore a Catholic monarch to the throne. Guy Fox was tried, found guilty, and hanged. And according to legend, his body was then drawn and quartered and the pieces were thrown into a fire. The next year on the anniversary of the failed plot and the years following, London's children and adults mocked the memory of Guy Fawkes by causing chaos in the streets, parading, begging, and building bonfires. Today in England, this is called Guy Fawkes Day, or Bonfire Night. The custom that has evolved over the centuries in England is for children to make effigies of Guy Fawkes, and then Guy Fawkes is burnt on a bonfire. They spend several weeks prior to November 5th with their dummies and asking people for a penny for the guy. It's a begging tradition, not unlike trick-or-treating in its own way. But would this pagan celebration make its way across the Atlantic to disrupt the sanctuary of the New World? For the Bible-believing Puritans of New England, the supernatural was a dark, menacing force not a harmless superstition worthy of a yearly holiday observance. They considered Halloween too pagan and too Catholic. The Protestants being rebels broke away from the Church of England because they believed it was too Catholic. And they left England for the colonies for this reason. And so they didn't want to carry anything with them that had to do with Catholicism. And Halloween was something that had to do with Catholicism. By the mid-19th century, America was primed for a much darker holiday. Having endured four long years of civil war that ended in 1865 with over a half a million dead. There were so many unclaimed, unknown dead bodies that the civil war left behind that this country was obsessed with death. And mostly it was that so many of these soldiers died unknown. We don't know what happened to them. So there was a huge sense of they could come back. Maybe they're not dead. It makes perfect sense that people would tell more ghost stories. And the very first Halloween ghost stories were about people coming back home. It's at this time America's Halloween story begins. And when we come back, America and Halloween here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our Halloween story, Halloween Comes to America. After the Civil War in Virginia, which hosted a large Catholic and Anglican population, the holiday thrived when Scottish and Irish immigrants brought their rural Old World Halloween customs with them and they helped to establish even more American Halloween traditions. For the Scots, it was a little bit of a scarier night. Until fairly late, we're still talking about the appearance of bogies on Halloween. Bogies, or boogeymen, were ghosts used by adults to frighten children into good behavior, especially around Halloween time. They were said to be hiding under beds, tapping on windows, or lurking by a gate. Halloween's signature symbol, the jack-o'-lantern, also began as a European tradition, but the prototype wasn't carved from a pumpkin. There's a great legend about a character named Jack-o'-lantern. And Jack was a troublemaker, but he was so bad, he even managed to get himself thrown out of hell, which is not an easy thing to do. But the devil did decide to have pity on him and scooped up an ember from the fires of hell and gave it to him. So Jack takes the ember and he puts it inside a hollowed out turtle and he walks around and that becomes the legend of Jack O'Lantern. In one age old European practice, children would carve their own jack-o'-lanterns out of turnips and light them with candles. Here's historian Donna Curtin. The first reference we have in the United States to jack-o'-lantern comes from Nathaniel Hawthorne, and he's writing in Twice Told Tales, and he's describing someone's very tattered coat full of holes, and when you hold it up to the light, it shines like a jack-o'-lantern would. Planted in July and harvested in October, Americans substituted the big round orange pumpkin for the old world's hard little turnips. And Halloween finally had its trademark. The ghastly face of Halloween was reimagined in gruesome shades of orange and black at the turn of the 20th century. For the first time, artists of the era brought together all things scary and linked them to Halloween. Skeletons, spiderwebs, jack-o'-lanterns, and bats. They all established the look of Halloween that we still use today. Among these icons is the white sheeted ghost. The sheet that a ghost wears derives from uh, the winding sheet, the shroud that corpses were traditionally wrapped in before burial. Horned devils came from medieval depictions of Satan and witches from witch-hunting hysteria that swept through Europe and Puritan America. Witches became very popular in the early part of the 20th century, which is why they naturally became linked to Halloween. And there's actually a change in the way we perceive witches. The witches of the 19th century were old, they had big noses and there were warts. And the witches in the 20th century are actually kind of attractive. It makes Halloween just a little, not only scary, but also a little naughty. But even as Halloween was dressing its old customs in new costumes, it was also creating new traditions. Bad ones. 
In the early 20th century, Halloween was getting out of hand. Young vandals were destroying private property and causing mischief on Halloween to the dread of the locals and police departments all over America. If Halloween were to survive, it would have to change. Schools and police departments and other civic groups consciously and very actively promoted the idea of taming Halloween. And so they started to invent all sorts of things for kids to do, to divert them. Townwide parties, costume contests, games, everything that you could think of to get the kids away from pulling tricks and into the light. Novelty companies like Denison Company helped out these civic efforts. Denison published a series of Halloween booklets called Bogey Books that suggested ways of turning Halloween from a prank night into a party night. Denison was one of the first companies that realized there was money to be made off of Halloween. They started to put their own Halloween materials out for retail sale in drugstores all over America. Denison also sold masks and paper costumes. It was the first time costumes were specifically made and marketed for Halloween. Before that, costumes had all been homemade. Soon, other manufacturers looking to tap into the kid market for Halloween began making more durable costumes. Sears' first box costumes came around 1930, and then it, it went from there. And the costumes came off of radio show characters and the funny papers. Costumes for parties, costumes for wild, town-wide parties, and for school parties and church parties. Halloween was a big social occasion. Halloween parades also helped drag the holiday out from the shadows and into the public arena. Allentown, Pennsylvania, may have been the first parade in 1905, but others soon followed. Tom's River, New Jersey in 1919, and the little town of Anoka, Minnesota in 1920. Anoka residents got tired of waking up on November 1st to find their cattle roaming on Main Street. A result of Halloween pranking, so, Anoka civic leaders instituted a program of Halloween parades, giveaways, and bonfires. Anoka has held its parade every year since. In fact, the city with a population of 17,000 now bills itself the Halloween capital of the world. Storyteller extraordinaire Garrison Keeler creator of the Minnesota public radio show A Prairie Home Companion remembers what it was like growing up in the Halloween capital of the world. There was a big granite chip mosaic on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Main Street that said Anoka, Minnesota, Halloween capital of the world and a black witch in the center of it. So there was proof. The reason for Halloween in Anoka, the big civic part of it, the children in their costumes marching down the street, was to try to blunt or thwart um, the tradition of vandalism, mischief, which was the other side of Halloween, of course. 
You could toilet paper somebody's house. And I don't know if you've ever tried to get wet toilet paper out of a very tall maple tree, but uh, after you've done that, you start to believe in capital punishment. Each of these local efforts to tame Halloween worked to some extent. But what Halloween really needed was a whole new tradition. And it would soon get one. Trick-or-treat is amazingly new. People think trick-or-treat goes back for centuries, and it doesn't. Trick-or-treat is actually less than 80 years old, probably. Um, The term derives from pranking that was very widespread and destructive in America in the 20th century. And at some point, somebody came up with the brilliant idea of buying off these pranksters. Homeowners bribed rowdy kids with homemade treats such as popcorn balls and candy apples to avoid getting pranked or tricked. In 1939, the phrase and the custom turned up in print. Doris Hudson Moss published an article in American Home Magazine that talked about the success she had having a Halloween open house for the kids in her neighborhood. She didn't get tricked. She gave them sweets. It all worked. And when we come back, the final segment, our Halloween story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we return to Greg Hengler and his very special reporting on Halloween, its origins, how it came to America, and now the final part of this story. Trick or treat, trick or treat, trick or treat for Halloween. With new customs came new treats. Now kids began getting store bought prepackaged candies. Mars bars, Reese's Cups, M&M's, and good old Hershey's chocolate. Candy finally killed the rowdy Halloween. And now the time was right for the reinvented holiday to hit Hollywood. Hollywood has forever made movies from the creepy to the comical. Here's the 1952 Disney short titled Trick or Treat starring Donald Duck. Donald's nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, approach their uncle's door for a Halloween treat. Uh-oh, but Donald drops a trick into the boys' pillowcases. Lit firecrackers. And then follows it up by dropping on them a bucket of water that's been dangling above their heads. In 1966, just a year following A Charlie Brown Christmas, Halloween stature zoomed off the charts when America went trick-or-treating with Charlie Brown. Here's executive producer of the Peanuts animated specials, Lee Mendelson. 
The whole idea of the Great Pumpkin, of course, came from the comic strip when Sparky Schultz decided that it would be very funny if one of the kids got his holidays mixed up. And uh, so that's how Linus ends up in the pumpkin patch every year. Who are you writing to, Linus? This is the time of year to write to the Great Pumpkin. On Halloween night, the Great Pumpkin rises out of his pumpkin patch and flies through the air with this bag of toys for all the children. You must be crazy. When are you going to stop believing in something that isn't true? When you stop believing in that fellow with the red suit and the white beard. Halloween night. A small American town. 15 years ago. Halloween-themed cartoons were one thing. A movie for adults with Halloween as its theme was another. Nobody had ever tried it before. That is, until director John Carpenter took a stab at it in 1978 with the simply titled classic, Halloween. Michael? Here's John Carpenter. The idea for calling my film Halloween came from the distributor. And when he said it, I thought, you know, he's absolutely right. There's never been really a Halloween-themed film. It's one of those eye-openers. Wow, why didn't I think of that years ago? What a great idea. Carpenter's $325,000 film about Michael Myers, a silent killer who escapes from a mental institution on Halloween, would spawn a franchise grossing more than $500 million. It also elevated the horror film from B-movie status to a respected genre. The slasher film also redefines speed. We learn that no matter how fast you run, Michael Myers walks faster. Carpenter's self-composed Halloween theme became recognizable apart from the movie. Here's John Carpenter and his band performing his iconic Halloween theme in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater in 2016. Horror movies will live forever. And completely by accident, Carpenter's film would also redefine our attitudes about Halloween masks. It started when the wardrobe budget forced the crew to create a mask for the villain for next to nothing. Here again is John Carpenter. The production designer ran up to Burt Wheeler's magic shop on Hollywood Boulevard and bought this Captain Kirk from Star Trek mask, which didn't look anything like William Shatner, just looked this strange face, elongated face. But it was spray painted and, and, and fixed up a little bit. It was distorted, which is perfect. It's kind of written that way in the script, as wearing a face. The bargain basement mask and the villain behind it soon became another Halloween icon. Today, that trend has escalated to an obsession. Nail-biting knockoff film franchises like A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, and Halloween are inspiring growing legions of kids to dress to kill. Masks take their inspiration from pop culture, religion, politics, sports, you name it. And a growing number of faces behind them belong not to kids, but adults. 
Halloween has become a huge adult activity, and I, and I don't think that was uh, the case, say, 50, 60 years ago. But it's been, again, specific days set aside where you can be somebody that you normally aren't. Uh, you can get behind a mask, you can wear clothes you would never wear during the rest of the year, uh, and people enjoy these. You get those children who are now growing up, and they become very nostalgic for Halloween. So Halloween shifts again, starts to become more of an adult holiday. Fifty years ago, when you were too old to trick-or-treat, you probably had to stay home and hand out candy. There was nothing else for you to do. Now there is a vast and imaginative haunted house industry just for you. And there's something like 4,000 haunted houses in the United States every year. Here again is John Carpenter. I loved haunted houses. It fascinated me. They terrified me as a kid. But haunted houses aren't the only activity for adults on Halloween. From the two million people attending New York City's Greenwich Village Halloween Parade to the half a million attending West Hollywood's Halloween Carnival, the holiday takes a walk on the wild and naughty side. If you look at the costumes that are sold to adults these days, the costumes for women are all kind of borderline prostitute costumes. You know, the sexy nurse, the sexy maid, the sexy anything. Clearly, a lot of women want to have a very sexy side of them, and it's only on Halloween that they bring it out. Maybe, you know, they could do a little more often. Not surprisingly, alcohol plays a huge role in Halloween's popularity. So much so that by the 1990s, beer sales for Halloween surpassed both the Super Bowl and St. Patrick's Day. Halloween's popularity is also due to the fact that it embodies the American obsession with self-transformation, being who you aren't or who you would like to be. Trick-or-treaters remain on high alert today. And just as Halloween has scared kids for years, Halloween scares parents too. They fear sending their kids out into a hostile world of trick-or-treats full of poisoned candy and razor blade riddled apples. Reynoldsburg police confirm it was a razor blade found in a piece of candy. They're recommending you spread out all of your children's candy and inspect each piece. I grew up hearing about razor blades and apples myself, and it's clearly what we would call a contemporary legend, uh, another term is urban legend. There's a great societal unease about this idea that we're telling our kids to go take candy from strangers. So there's a lot of stories about razor blades and candied apples and, and these sorts of things. Uh, and parents every year get very, very worried about it. Did razor blades and apples ever happen? Uh, I believe there are a couple of cases, but of course you can ask which came first, you know, the story or the actions. Razor blades and apples, jack-o'-lanterns, soul cakes. They make up the legends, the texture of the Halloween we know. Today, Halloween wears many masks, yet it still remains the domain of kids. When you're a kid, you had one night a year where you were in charge, you got to dress up, you got to be something that you usually weren't, and you kind of even got paid for the privilege of this. It was an amazing holiday. Look closely, and you will see Halloween is a showcase for everything the human race fears. Through the centuries, we've learned to live and tame that which scares us most. 
It's invigorating, it's sensual, there's a freedom to it that is very, very enjoyable. At the same time, it's ritualized. You can do this at a certain time, a certain place. Some of the images of Halloween, some of the decorations, if people would have put them out at any other time of the year, their neighbors would call the police. But at Halloween, you're allowed to take these very disturbing kinds of ideas and deal with them directly. There's a great liberation, a great sense of freedom to that. It is on this day of freedom that Americans turn their fears into fun. I'm Greg Hengler. And we here at Our American Stories would like to wish you and yours a very happy and safe Halloween. And great job as always on that, Greg. And my favorite part of the art, I'd read Hawthorne, I was an American lit major. I did not know he introduced the jack-o'-lantern into America. Again, thanks for those details, Greg. A lot of work goes into pieces like this. And you can hear all that we do here on Our American Stories. Go to Our American Network. Dot org. The Halloween story here on Our American Stories. <laughs>